Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Laura Wenis and this is Fifth and Mission. Airports are busy with summer travelers right now. Some are escaping extreme heat waves in their home countries, while other tourists are finding themselves vacationing in unbearable heat. Many of the world's most desirable destinations in Europe, Asia, and North America are uncomfortable or even dangerous right now. It's not just another sign of climate change. It's a stark confirmation. And it is climate change that has prompted some people to swear off air travel almost entirely. Worldwide, flying only accounts for about 2% of greenhouse gas emissions, but that varies by location. In the Bay Area, about 11% of emissions are attributed to flying. For individuals, the proportion of our carbon footprints contributed by air travel can be shocking. Cutting out just one round-trip flight to and from New York, which emits about a metric ton of greenhouse gases, has the same environmental impact as going vegan for a year. Today on Fifth and Mission, we'll hear from someone who once traveled the world almost without using airplanes at all. I'm Barnali Ghosh. I am a designer and transportation justice advocate and walking tour guide based in Berkeley, California. In 2009, Barnali and her husband Anirvan decided to embark on a year-long trip that took them all over the world, and they wanted to do so without flying. On this trip, they talked with climate activists and people affected by climate change. They wanted to learn about the fallout of environmental destruction without adding to it any more than they had to. Bernali will talk about the disproportionate contributions of some countries to climate change while other nations bear the burdens. The Bangladeshi way of life is much more gentle on the earth. And the American way of life is much more harsh. And yet our insistence on like driving and flying and eating a certain way is what is destroying the Bangladeshi way of life. Later in the show, I'll speak with Kate Selig, formerly a climate reporting intern for The Chronicle, who wrote a story about Barnali and others in the Bay Area who have committed to cutting back on air travel. She'll share how experts recommend scaling back air miles and tips for reducing your emissions if you do fly. But first, my conversation with transportation justice advocate Barnali Ghosh, who considers flying an important part of her story, but is cutting back. So tell me about your relationship with climate change and your personal carbon footprint. So I'm an immigrant. I moved here to the Bay Area, to Berkeley in 1999 from Bangalore in India. And for me, what comes up when I think of climate change is how my homelands are disproportionately impacted by carbon emissions. So there's this continuous tension for me about living here, having my home be here in the U.S., but also recognizing the disproportionate impact of the actions of the U.S. and and how folks in my homelands face those impacts the most. More than a decade ago now, you and your husband embarked on a trip that took you all over the world, almost entirely without flying. You were taking container ships, trains, buses, rickshaws, and other vehicles, and you were talking with climate activists in other countries about the impacts that they were seeing. One of your goals with this trip was to understand why people do fly, what cultural and political barriers we face to traveling without getting in an airplane. 
What prompted you to plan this flightless trip? And what were some of the barriers that you encountered? We started thinking about our carbon footprint more intently after Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, the documentary, came out. We were at home. We said, oh, you know, we should check our carbon footprint. We'll probably do really well because we live in a small house. We don't own a car. My husband, Anirban, is vegetarian. I eat very little meat. And yet we found that we were in the, I think, the 90th percentile of, of Americans in terms of our carbon emissions. Wow. And, and when we dug deeper, it turned out that it was because of the flying that we were doing. The two or three domestic flights that we would take in a year to go to a conference, to see a friend, to go to a wedding, but also the international flight that we would take every year to go see family back home. In 2009, climate change was not a front page story, even though it was on the mind of so many of us who had watched this documentary and were recognizing the sort of climate colonialism, um, the, the way our commons had been taken over by the emissions of the past, of industrialized nations of the past and countries like the U.S., And yet what we were noticing is that temperatures were going up in South Asia. Countries like Bangladesh were very prone to flooding. Bangladesh, even uh, Pakistan, which has a coast, Karachi might be underwater in 2050. So we were just feeling like we were this, like we were living in two different worlds, right? We were living in a world where our homelands were impacted. And yet in the U.S., we didn't see any conversations about that. And hungry for that conversation, hungry to find out how these places were being impacted, but also how were people taking action? How were they adapting to this new reality? We thought, hey, maybe we had a year off that maybe we can go interview some of these folks that were not being heard by folks here in the U.S. At the same time, we had just found out, like I said, the huge impact of flying on our personal carbon footprint. So tell me how you went about planning this and what you were hoping to get out of it. Because we had the time and the space and the money, we said, what if we did this without getting on a plane? And it would be an experiment to see if that was even possible, because flying is such a default, especially of American life. But once we started looking into it, options emerged. However, the options are often more expensive. They take longer. But that also depends on the area you're talking about. In the U.S., for example, train travel is extremely slow. It's mostly people take it for like recreation, not for actual travel. But in places like India, where we have an amazing train system, most of the population travels by train. So in the U.S., we were definitely lacking in terms of alternatives to flying. But in other places, we were seeing that, you know, most of the world doesn't fly. Our numbers then showed that only about 5% of the world has ever set foot on a plane. So flying in general is a very elitist activity. Let's dig into a little bit more of these barriers that you encountered, because I don't know how easy or hard it is to cross an ocean on a container ship, but I imagine it's not as simple as hopping on a website and selecting your departure and destination and picking from a list of ticket options. (laughs) What went into planning these different legs of your trip? Container ship travel, hate to break it to you, actually was pretty simple. Oh. There is a travel agent. You go to the travel agent, you tell them where you want to leave from and where your destination is. They give you options and you pay for a ticket. Retirees in the UK travel by container ship all the time. So, yeah, I had exactly that reaction. I'm like, why didn't I know about this? And people always think of it as this grand adventure. And 
Honestly, for me, it was because we had to be on a ship crossing the Pacific for 10 days. It doesn't stop at any port. That's how long it took us to get from Seattle to Yokohama. We really wanted to leave from Oakland, but they didn't have any ships leaving around that time. So, yes, there are logistical challenges. You can't always leave from the place you want. You won't always get to your destination when you think you will. So we have to, you have to be more open and more flexible. So I do want to ask about the time component, because this seems like it's something you're only you were only able to do at that time because you had a year where you could be flexible about the timing. How does this kind of travel or this limitation of not using air travel, what kind of time does that take? For us, it's a change of mindset, right? Hmm. It's what we're accustomed to, what we feel entitled to. Uh, I often think of it also in terms of like the slow food movement, for instance. What do we give up? What do we gain? For us, slow travel can be seen as a luxury, but it can also be seen as a kinder way, a gentler way to travel the earth, right? For me, it was such a calmer way. We went to fewer countries. We stayed longer. We got to know more people and we got to know the place differently than only spending like 10 days, which is what an American vacation usually allows you to do. In many mm -hmm. countries and most other countries, local travel is using ferries and buses and trains. And that's the pace that people are accustomed to. Flying has, it is very seductive, this idea of like, you know, getting on here and then two hours later being in a completely different place, or like eight hours later being in a different continent. I can see how seductive that is. But as we learn about new information about how harmful it is, I feel like we need to reevaluate our and you know, reevaluate the way we live our lives and shift based on that new information, right? Is it worth it for those places that we are dying to see to disappear because of the way we travel to them? You have described annual trips to see your family in India as non-negotiable. And for people who are traveling for business purposes, for example, there's also just some limitations in terms of time that make flying kind of necessary. How do you decide what qualifies as worth it to fly? It's a personal decision. You know, I think being an immigrant, some of the choices we made were made not knowing about the emissions from flying, for example. I often think about would I have made a different choice to stay closer, maybe to stay in India, if I knew how harmful making this choice would be. That being said, at least in the UK, what we learned is the overall footprint of aviation, the contributions come not from immigrants, many of whom cannot afford to fly home every year. It actually comes from people who are, you know, doing a quick jaunt to Spain to go to their holiday home, for example, right? You know, mm -hmm. with cheap flights like Ryanair and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's the closest thing to public transit that people understand. Some choices, sometimes you don't have a choice of where you live or what you do. But within that, I think there is still a lot that people can do to reduce their personal flying. It requires some sacrifice. Anirvan got invited to like Diwali at the White House. And we were like, are we, are we going to do this? And we were like, yeah, OK, maybe this one is worth it. And maybe we won't do an East Coast trip for like another three, four years. Right. So we would never fly to L.A., for example, which is something that's very normalized in California. In terms of business, I think we saw this during COVID. 
that people magically were able to do things on Zoom that before they would have to fly for. A lot of the younger generation doesn't buy into like business travel. Business travel used to be glamorous. It's not that glamorous anymore. So we also have to be sort of rethinking our, our business practices. Barnali Ghosh, when we were talking earlier about how some people contribute more than others to climate change, you used this phrase climate colonialism. Can you expand on that? Uh, in many of our communities, decolonize is, is a word that is used often. And when we think of decolonization, we think of it almost very literally. If you think about where our emissions go, those have a certain capacity. And that capacity has been occupied since the beginning of industrialization by the so-called developed nations, leaving very little space or I would say no space for developing countries to reach a level, a, a certain standard of living, for example. Then what needs to happen is countries like the U.S., where we live, have to work harder on reducing their emissions. And the time for that might have already passed. But what we discovered from talking to folks, say in Bangladesh, for example, no amount of adaptation they might do is actually going to help if we don't also reduce our emissions. And historically, it's a justice issue, right? Who should be reducing emissions? We might call on China, we might call on India, but what are we doing? What are our countries doing? So that's where the climate colonialism piece comes from. It's also trying to attribute responsibility and accountability to the right people. Do you see individuals giving up air travel or dramatically reducing their air travel as a form of advancing climate justice? There is a culture of, you know, seeing places. It's a liberal value. It's a progressive value. We would make fun of people who didn't have passports, who'd never left the U.S., right? Mm. And I think that culture has to shift to being actually, if you're progressive, flying to a country, going for summer vacation is not a progressive value anymore. And I think personal individual changes can help us shift the culture. I also think personal and individual change helps us understand the barriers to it. Like, why do we need a better train system in the U.S.? Why do we need better bus stations in the U.S.? So I think personally, people making this change, seeing what is actually difficult about making this change, allows us to then advocate and ask for the right systemic changes. I see this in my work as an advocate for public transit, walking and biking, where people still oppose bike lanes. So if we want real change, we also have to look at changing people's hearts and minds in order to support that, because politicians are often looking at what their constituency wants, right? So if we want to demand better bus service, better train service in this country that helps us see our family and friends, see our places, go to our national parks, that's how we're going to shift, right? Barnali, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. Even with a year to travel with alternative transportation, Barnali Ghosh and her husband couldn't avoid flying entirely. Sometimes there's just no way around it. We'll hear how to reduce your flying emissions, even if you can't quit cold turkey, after a break. For more about how individuals are pushing for a collective shift away from flying, I talked with a former colleague who wrote about this movement for The Chronicle. Kate Selig is a climate reporting intern for The Washington Post, but this spring she was a climate reporting intern at The Chronicle. Kate, thank you for talking with me. Yeah, thank you. So aviation 
only accounts for about 2% of global carbon emissions. And at the same time, that proportion is actually growing, and it's much higher in wealthy places like the Bay Area. How bad is flying really? And how do you assess how bad it is? So for the average person who lives in the Bay Area and maybe takes, you know, one or a couple of flights a year, aviation is usually the biggest contributor to their personal carbon footprint. One way of looking at it is that if a person takes a nonstop round trip flight from San Francisco to New York, that's going to release about a metric ton of carbon. And the average annual American carbon footprint is about 15 metric tons. So you can see how that can start to add up pretty quickly. And according to experts, it's also the area that people can cut back on most easily. Mm. On an individual basis, how does flying compare to other major sources of individual person's emissions, like the food choices they make or their homes or their commutes? Yeah, so that's hard to say. Uh, It's known that those factors that you mentioned do contribute greatly to a person's individual carbon footprint. But depending on choices, such as whether somebody drives a car, whether they're a vegetarian or what type of housing they live in, the percentage that those components can comprise of one's total carbon emissions can vary. But what is known is that if you are flying and flying frequently, that usually is the number one contributor to your carbon footprint. You note that California's goal of cutting emissions by 85% by 2045 doesn't include air travel. Is that a major oversight? Are we failing to look at a big part of California's climate picture here? Yes. So California does take into account domestic flights within the state. Um, However, it doesn't take into account transportation between states, which of course encompasses a large part of air travel. So it does seem that the way that California is estimating its greenhouse gas emissions is probably an undercount. Let's talk about the individual people you talk to who are giving up flying. It's really not easy for them. One person you talk to is an international student who's cutting back his trips home to France from three times a year to just once. You and I both spoke with someone who describes flying home once a year as non-negotiable, but who has sworn off of other air travel. How does this decision affect people's lives? And what do they tell you about why it's worth it? Yeah. So everybody did admit or everybody did say that it's a real sacrifice. I mean, when you're not flying and you have family in other parts of the country or even the world, that means seeing them is then reduced to things like video calls or emails or texts. For people who fly for work, that can also be a problem. One of the folks I spoke with, Ariella Granette, used to work as an architect and her job had her flying multiple times a year. And when she decided to give up flying, uh, with that came switching to a firm that had more of a local focus because that amount of travel just uh, wasn't compatible with her goals of giving up flying. And then last up, there are people, many people who travel just for the fun of it and giving up air travel. It just reduces how far you can go. At the same time, though, everyone I spoke with who gave up flying said that it was worth it. Instead of, say, maybe flying to see a friend or family, they're making more intentional efforts to stay connected over long distances. Um, Instead of far-flung trips to parts of the world like Europe or Asia, they're now focusing on more domestic travel and staying within California. And because this is a decision that brings their actions more in line with their values, it's something that they think is completely worthwhile. What alternatives do the experts recommend for people who want to lower their travel carbon footprint? Experts did say that there is no substitute for simply not traveling. Uh, If instead of taking a flight, you decide to drive there in a gas-powered car by yourself, you're probably emitting about the same emissions mile per mile, though it does vary depending on fuel economy and how long your trip is. For those who are looking to cut down their carbon emissions, experts said doing something like taking the train or carpooling or driving an electric vehicle can be a better option. Carbon offsets are also pretty controversial, but one researcher at Stanford, Chris Field, uh, recommended looking for offset providers that meet the California Air Resources Board's cap-and-trade systems requirements, and that can also be a way to cut down your emissions if the offsets are reputable. 
The experts also did say that if you are going to fly, there are some things you can do. Definitely fly direct if possible, uh, because planes burn a lot more fuel during takeoff and landing. The experts also said you can do fewer longer trips instead of a lot of short haul trips uh, to also reduce your emissions. And last up, some sites that sell flights, such as Google, even have estimates of how many emissions the flight is going to produce as you go to book your flight. And you can take a look at those because they take into other factors, such as how old the plane is or what type of plane model. And that can also give you a better sense of uh, ways to cut down your emissions when booking a flight. And just real quick, under what circumstances is driving actually better than flying? I think the experts would say driving is better than flying when you're carpooling, uh, driving an electric vehicle, or driving for a short distance because planes have better fuel economy the farther that they go. Cool. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. Kate Selig is a climate reporting intern at The Washington Post and was reporting on climate for the San Francisco Chronicle in the spring. You can read her story, which inspired this episode, at sfchronicle.com. This episode was produced with help from Cecilia Lay and Sarah Feldberg. Thanks to Keith Manconi for editing the audio, and thanks to you for listening.